Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we will talk with Dr. Carolyn Bordeaux, who served in Congress representing Georgia's 7th uh, Congressional District from 2021 to 2023. Previously, she served as director of Georgia's Senate Budget and Evaluation Office, and she's now a senior visiting scholar at the University of Georgia, and we are happy to say a member of the Concord Coalition Board of Directors. During her time in Congress, uh, Dr. Bordeaux championed fiscal responsibility. She was a co-chair of the Fiscal Responsibility Task Force for the Blue Dog Coalition, which is a group of Democratic House members who support putting the federal budget on a more sustainable path. As a member of Congress, uh, she worked on health care issues, small business and infrastructure. And she worked with the uh, Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus to help pass the Infrastructure, <coughs> excuse me, Infrastructure Investment and Job Act. So we will get Dr. Bordeaux's perspectives on the current state of the congressional budget process, whether there are any lessons that uh, could be learned at the federal level from state budgeting, and what the prospects are for bipartisan action on our nation's troubled fiscal outlook. Joining me for the conversation are the Concord Coalition's National Field Director, Phil Smith, and Communications Director, Av Harris. Carolyn, welcome back to Facing the Future. Great to be here. Yeah, you know, last time you were on this show, you were a member of Congress, and uh and now you're a member of the Concord Coalition Board of Directors. I won't ask you which is better. <laughs> even better. Even better. Yeah, I'm really enjoying this opportunity. And it's going to it's great to work with you guys and look forward to doing more good projects in the future. Well, that's uh, that's nice of you. I, certainly, we, we wish you were back in uh, Congress. But uh, if you're not, the next best thing is to be on our board. You know, you I. I, I, I I wanted to uh, ask sort of a big picture question starting out. And uh, I certainly want to talk about your experience at state budgeting and comparing it to the federal budget. There's a, there's a question that I often wonder about, um, though, before we get to that, which is, you know, we get reports all the time on long term from the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office, the Medicare and Social Security trustees all warning about our fiscal problems, both short-term and long-term. And I, I just wondered, uh, you know, you had a special sensitivity to this coming into Congress because you had such a lot of work on the state budget. But do members of Congress understand these things? I mean, do they pay attention to them? Is there, a, is, is there actually an awareness of these reports that uh, come out from these nonpartisan agencies? Well, I, I think there's some, but you have to recognize as a member of Congress, you're being constantly deluged with uh, 
warnings of dire things to come in the future. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and this is one of many. Uh, there's climate change. There's all sorts of uh, defense challenges, whether it's China or Russia or, um, you know, some other adversary we're worried about or on terror. So um, it is one of many things that people are concerned about. Um, but what I really think, and something we might want to get into, is it's almost, uh, you know, been a generation in Congress since people have really, really been worried about the budget. I was a staffer uh, to several members of Congress and a senator back in the 90s. And it was an obsession at that time. I mean, we were just constantly talking about it. Every single bill had to be paid for. Paygo was constantly part of the, the dialogue. And all of that has really been lost. And so I think rebuilding some of that culture of concern about the budget and uh, actually recognizing that this is important, it's responsible budgeting, um, and that just needs to be built back into the culture of Congress. Yeah, I mean, that that's the culture which uh, from which the Concord Coalition was born. You came into Congress with a, a lot of experience at the state level on on budget issues in, in Georgia. And I know that you've been thinking about and writing about some of the lessons learned at the state level that could be applied to federal budgeting. And I'm I'm wondering if, um, you know, what are some of those themes that you think the federal budget lacks that could be uh, that the, the state budgets do better? I do think it's really jarring. So if you come out of the state system, and I was director of the Senate Budget Office during the Great Recession, uh, and then I worked at the Volcker Alliance uh, after that uh, to evaluate state fiscal processes and to look for whether states were really in balance or not. And so here I'd spent uh, about 15 years uh, directly working on state budgets. Before that, I'd worked at the federal level. And again, that was at a time when people really cared about balancing budgets. And then you go into the federal process and I know I am not alone in finding it very jarring um, how absolutely out of whack it is at the federal level. It's almost like money is no object. You can spend whatever you want. Don't worry about it too much. And um, I know I'm not the only one who has that kind of cultural shock, but it, it really was big for me because I had come out of decades of real concern about fiscal responsibility, really being steeped in a culture where everything had to be paid for. And you were just constantly thinking about how to wring every last dime uh, out of the taxpayer dollars. And again, so that culture has been lost and we need to find ways to bring that back. One more question on this subject is one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the, the piece was that you, you know, you talk about expectations and that, uh, you know, rules aren't always airtight uh, at the state level. There's uh, always some uh, fudging here and there, but it's really that expectation that is is terribly important. And you know, rules can help set those expectations and facilitate those hard choices. And I guess you've seen that happen. Yeah. So at the state level, everybody knows that they have a balanced budget requirement, and almost every state has it embedded in statute or in their constitution. Um, if you're a budget director, one of the things you know is that there are lots of escape valves um, that the general public may not be that aware of. Um, you can issue debt, you can short your pension, you can pass things on to local governments. There are lots of, lots of unbalancing things you can do. Um, but by and large, states do pass very fiscally constrained budgets, and they've done this 
for a long, long, long time, year in and year out. And uh, the, that, that balanced budget requirement sets those expectations at the state level. So one of my formative experiences was balancing the budget during the Great Recession. And Georgia's revenues dropped from 20 billion to 15 billion. I mean, just a staggering shortfall. And the legislators, uh, you know, I was working in a nonpartisan role, but was heavily working with the Republican leadership. And they were absolutely terrified to be facing this kind of shortfall. They thought this was potentially the end of their political careers. And, you know, it was really rough going into that moment. But boy, I mean, they sat down, they believed the budget had to be balanced, and they just steeled themselves to that process. Um, they went out, they did presentations, you know, all across the community to talk about, uh, you know, how they were facing this really rough set of choices, and they were trying to make cuts in a way that was fair, and, you know, everybody was holding hands together to get through this process. And at the end of the day, those budgets passed by broad and bipartisan majorities, and it was really, really something to see. And, you know, everything from the media to the town halls, just the expectations really throughout the state were that they had no choice. They had to sit down and get the budget balanced. And, you know, and all of that comes to some degree from that balanced budget requirement. And the belief, even though we all know it's not really real, but the belief that you're going to have to make hard choices to keep the budget in line. And somehow we've got to find a way to translate that same sense of belief and expectations and, uh, you know, making sure the, the voters believe that elected officials have to sit down and make tough choices. Just one more thing, and I can talk about it forever. There are many, many different aspects uh, that flow from from the balanced budget requirement that are just not present at the at the uh, federal level. So for instance, when the revenue estimate is set at the beginning of the year, you know, typically it's either an executive, uh, the governor is setting the revenue estimate that is perceived as binding in states like Georgia. So the legislature sees that revenue estimate and they're like, okay, we have got a balance to that number. Other states have a consensus process where the legislature and executive get together. They agree on the revenue estimate and that is binding. And so that nature of a binding revenue estimate, again, just not present at the federal level. Then there are the trade-offs that happen uh, within a budget, right? So every time you propose an increase, if you're bound by that revenue estimate, you have to find a decrease somewhere else. And, and so it, it really, it forces those trade-offs. And I would say the last really important thing, there are probably a few more if I, if I dig deep, but it's, it happens on an annual basis. And so it's not like we're pushing this off to year nine of a 10-year window. All of those trade-offs are happening within that fiscal year. And so, and that's where the debate is centered. And so I think thinking about how to translate those things to the federal context will be very important uh, for us trying to reestablish those norms of fiscal responsibility. I'm going to uh, turn now to Phil Smith, um, your fellow Georgian. <laughs> Phil. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, good afternoon, Congresswoman. Normally, I'm coming to you from uh, our home state of Georgia, but today I'm in beautiful downtown Manchester above the baseball field. And yeah. as I was coming over, <laughs> that, would, that would be Manchester, New Hampshire. 
Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, there are about, there are about, there are about 15 presidential candidates there today. So <laughs> there are indeed. Uh, and as I was coming to Manchester, you know, I drove through our nearby Lowell, Massachusetts, the home of Paul Sangas. And then I drove near Nashua, New Hampshire, the home of Warren Rudman. And it made me think about our bipartisan co-founders. And it had me thinking a lot about bipartisanship. So my question today is about the importance of, of bipartisanship. And I know that when we look to Georgia, there's been a lot of famous policymakers from Georgia as well that had some infamous bipartisan relationships. I think about uh, Sam Nunn, who actually served as the co-chair of the Concord Coalition as well. He was our Democratic co-chair. He had some really uh, strong partners from across the aisle. I think about uh, Saxby Chambliss, who worked closely with Mark Warner on budget issues. I think about Johnny Isaacson, who worked hand in hand. He's a Republican from Georgia, worked for worked uh, hand in hand with the New Hampshire Democrat, Gene Shaheen, up here on uh, budget reform policies. So there's th lots of these great examples, but it seems like um, we're missing some of that today. Do you agree? And are there ways that we can encourage more bipartisan leadership? Yes. Yeah, so, well, bipartisanship is near and dear to my heart. And I was a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus uh, when I was in Congress and uh, have, you know, prior to that really took a lot of pride in working with both parties to try to solve problems and just not get bogged down in the, the partisan battle. Um, it is very hard right now. We are very polarized and there are many different forces from redistricting to social media um, that are really pushing us uh, apart. Um, but I think supporting organizations like the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, the Committee for a Responsible Budget, your organization, um, all of these organizations really place a premium on bringing both sides together to solve problems. And I think continuing to emphasize that um, is very, very important and uh, kind of goes back to that culture issue that we need to have a culture again, where it's not just about, you know, the, the Twitter put down or the smack, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, just unpleasant <laughs> politics that we've really gotten ourselves into and, and try to focus more on the folks who are actually solving the problems. And uh, I talk, I just had dinner the other night with some folks in the media and they were wringing their hands as well over this and just saying, you know, well, the, the conflict is what sells in the media, just like it sells on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on TikTok, right? Everybody loves the SmackDown. Um, but we've got to find a way to create space for people who want to come together, people who are really focused on problem solving, people who are willing to have an honest disagreement over ideas about how to get there and, um, and just sort of try to privilege those conversations a bit more. You represented one of the fastest growing counties in the whole country when you were in Congress and the second most populated of Georgia's 159 counties. In many ways, the future of America kind of looks like the district that you represented. What are some of the ways that we as, as budget policy educators uh, can better engage the future of America? And, and, and when, it, when we look to this emerging diversity, uh, does it give you hope for a brighter future You know, when you see uh, you had a large number of young people in your district. I think they were active in your campaign as well. Um, yeah. What are ways we can engage this diversifying America more, you think? Yeah, we have just wonderful young people who are coming up uh, through the ranks who are very interested. I think this, this generation is much more politically aware and engaged uh, than, than prior generations. So that's positive. 
Um, I think the Concord Coalition has this great budget model and simulation that they run with young people, which I think is very helpful and very important. Um, I think, you know, trying to, to get to young people, there's another simulation that someone uh, was talking about running with some young people where he, he talked about like what, what wage you might expect from your job and then how much of that is going to be taken by local taxes, by state taxes, by federal taxes. Hmm. And that apparently was very resonant. And when, when young people start to recognize the, the very real impact this is going to have on their lives, and I think pairing that then with the other side, which is the budget, so that you can actually you know, see where it's going at the local level and the state level and the federal level and sort of see how um, uh, it's being spent and what the trade-offs are uh, within those different budgets uh, would be very helpful. And it provides this wonderful foundation of civic education because you know, the budget really is in many ways where everything is discussed, where all the trade-offs come together. And so um, I think the work that the Concord Coalition is doing is really important. And I think continuing to really get down in the high schools and make sure that that is a part of our civics education uh, is going to be very important going forward. Bob, do you have time to squeeze in a question? I'll, I'll squeeze one in and we may have to get to <laughs> more in the uh, in the next segments. But I just want to say, uh, Carolyn, I'm, a, I'm also a veteran of many state level budget fights. And so uh, I feel your pain and I appreciate all of your efforts. Um, picking up on what Phil was just asking you about in terms of bipartisanship, um, a lot of people who I talk to about Congress just sort of throw up their hands and say, oh, they're all they're all fighting. Nobody can get along. They can't get they can't do anything. And it's a very pessimistic kind of uh, outlook. But at the same time, I see a Republican and a Democrat jointly proposing a comprehensive immigration reform bill. I see the chair and the ranking member of the budget committee in the House uh jointly saying we need to change how we do our budget process. Um, I see some other examples of, of some other bipartisan uh, collaboration. So should we be optimistic uh, or pessimistic or somewhere in between? What are we seeing signs of here that, that uh, what, what, what does the future of this kind of thing look like? Well, I think that is very positive. And I think it is important that we be emphasizing that people are coming together to solve problems. And uh, we just saw the president and the speaker uh, come together to lift the debt ceiling and to put out some pretty honest and a good first step set of proposals to try to bring the budget into line. And we need to celebrate that. Uh, what's really interesting, though, of, as, I, as I see the the game that is being played, right? One of the things that happened was that, you know, as Biden and uh, McCarthy came together to come up with this solution, they then had to reassure the people on the wings of their party that they had gotten the better deal and the other side had been screwed. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, so, you know, I just, I, 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 I do appreciate, you know, that, that, that they really, they had a very, very narrow little path that they had to uh, try to walk there and they pulled it off. And so I, I don't begrudge them some, you know, chest thumping and so forth because, you know, that was necessary in order for us to, to make it to the other side. But I think for organizations like us, um, uh, bipartisan policy group, there are many, many, many other organizations too, be re reiterating that the, this was a bipartisan agreement. 
it was a reasonable one where both sides gave a bit and got a bit, you know, and we just, we want to see more of that. And I will say, I, I firmly believe that the vast majority of the American people prefer that. It's just sort of, we've gotten stuck in this sort of partisan doom spiral and we're going to have to get ourselves out of it. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith of Harris and I are talking with former U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux about the challenges of the federal budget process, and there are many. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith of Harris and I are talking with former U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux about the challenges of the federal budget process. And I should mention that uh, Dr. Bordeaux is now a member of the Concord Coalition Board of Directors, and we're certainly very happy uh, to have her on the board. You know, before the break, we had, uh, I've had, had raised this idea that um, um, the chairman and the ranking member of the House Budget Committee, Jody Arrington and Brendan Boyle, just uh, dropped a proposal late last uh, Friday night, <laughs> Friday evening uh, proposal that uh, that they wanted to start a new bipartisan budget process reform effort. And um, I think that that's a, a very positive thing, uh, certainly when you get people uh working together on a bipartisan basis on, on just about anything, but but particularly uh, in the House and particularly on the budget. Um, Carolyn, have you had a, it, this just took us by surprise Friday. We, we put out a statement praising it. What's your initial impression of, you know, the difficulties, the challenges that they might face and any advice you might offer them? Well, first, I think it is very good. And so trying to nurture the seed of bipartisanship and uh, in the context of more fiscal responsibility uh, is very, very important. Uh, what was interesting is uh, when I was there, uh, I looked over the, uh, it was the Modernization of Congress uh, Special Committee, and they, they, they made these proposals, the Congress before I was there. But there's there are a lot of interesting ideas out there that I think um, uh, Jody and Brendan can pick up on that would uh, you know be very helpful in just sort of tilling the soil, thinking about the budget in a different way. So uh, some of the proposals were to have a bipartisan, I mean a, a bi biannual budget, um, or develop the budget resolution on a biannual basis. Um, have a budget that maybe includes tax expenditures. You know, put everything on the table at the same time when you're taking up the budget. Um, I would recommend, like most states do, most states don't split up the budget at the end of the day into 12 different committees and pass each one individually. Um, they have often 12 committees or more uh, that take up the pieces, but then all of that is combined into a single budget that then goes before the full legislative body. So having some kind of process that really brings things together, again, so you can see the trade-offs, you know, across different policy areas. And so you're thinking about all of this as one whole piece, as opposed to lots of little piecemeal, um, uh, you know, you know small bills that have to pass. I think there are a ton of things like that that they could think about um, that would really help reformulate, bring some fresh eyes, fresh thinking, 
uh, to the budget process and, again, might help us get back to more of that culture of fiscal responsibility that we really uh, have lost over the past 20 years. Yeah, I mean, the the two things that uh, kind of symbolize the dysfunction is you got the annual shutdown threat at the end of the year where they don't pass the appropriations bills and then they just have to pass a, a continuing resolution and that goes on for a few months before they finally get the, the bills done. And so that process really become bogged down. Uh, and then the other one we just saw was the debt ceiling. Uh, it'd be nice if we could find a better way to, to handle the, uh, the debt ceiling. So we didn't have a threat of a uh, government default. Th- those two things are, you know, those kind of landmines that we have to deal with every now and then. And, and you're certainly right that we could come up with probably a better way to, to look at budgeting long-term and put more things on the table. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's been uh, 1986 when we last you know, passed a budget on time. And even then that itself was something of an aberration. I think it was a, a past uh, only three times in the past 43 years we've ever passed uh, a budget on time. And so really overhauling our budget process <laughs> seems to be something that would be in order to try to realign <laughs> priorities and, I would say, you know, part of what you see at the state also is just a very disciplined tending to business. You know, it's like keeping your room clean, passing a budget on time, having a systematic process that you actually follow. You know, those kinds of things, even though you don't think of them as necessarily leading to a balanced budget, I think would just help restore that sense of of order from the the chaos that our federal budget, budget process has become. Um, Phil, I have a question. Speaking of what's happening on Capitol Hill, uh, Congresswoman, there are a number of proposals uh, to establish maybe a fiscal commission. And those of us that have been at this for a while, sometimes it might be easy for us to roll our eyes and like, oh, my gosh, here's another blue ribbon fiscal commission. Uh, because we know what the problem is, right? I mean, we, we know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what, what are the driving forces that make our uh, long-term federal budget unsustainable. But I guess there really are some upsides to having a commission, right? And as a, as a public servant, as someone who is elected by hundreds of thousands of constituents, uh, do you see an upside uh, to having a fiscal commission of some sort? Maybe I remember the BRAC commission that helped politicians make some tough decisions that they were having a hard time making. Uh, and it made it easier just to group it all in one thing, have experts make the decision and then have an up or down vote on it. Would something like that be helpful, you think? Absolutely. And uh, I, there are several bills out there that would do that in different ways. Um I think, again, we've kind of lost a generation here. It's been a decade, you know, since we've really, when was uh, Simpson Bowles? It was, 2010. Yeah. So 20, it, 2010. Been, so it's, you know. Yeah. So, so while most of us old timers <laughs> kind of roll our eyes at doing the commission, it's been a while since we've actually had that. It's been a while since we've, we've gotten together and, and really thought about it. And again, I think, the thing that we have to realize is that that balancing budgets is um, as much about social psychology, as much about you know creating norms and culture as it is about kind of the the old school rational allocation of priorities and and, and things like that. It really we really have to think of this as a as an exercise in addressing some of those kind of soft, somewhat intangible aspects of budgeting. And, and that really needs to be put back in place. Um, 
and the, the process, by changing the process, you can often help create and change those expectations. And so a commission might be a great first step uh, in doing that. I think that uh, every generation or so you need to have a commission. You know, our current co-chairs are Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth, and they were noted for the Kerry Danforth Commission from 1994 and <laughs> 95. So they, they predated Simpson Bowles. And I don't know who it's going to be, but yeah, it might be time for another uh, uh, duo to take on that, uh, that task. Av, got a question? Absolutely. So one of the fascinating uh, moments that we saw earlier this year was during the President Biden's State of the Union address, where there was some, you know, uh, haggling like in the, in, the, in the old Middle Eastern markets, you know, the haggling, haggling over price. So here is the president giving his speech, getting shouted, uh, shouted at by, uh, by House Republicans, um, and then he's giving it back. And so they had this moment about uh, Medicare and Social Security, and he and he and he famously said, uh, you know, stand up for let's stand up for seniors, and everybody stood up. And he goes, good. Now you've agreed we're not going to touch Medicare and Social Security. And um, and and in the one hand, people saw this as oh, he got the better on them, and there was this sort of bipartisan moment of agreement that we're not going to touch Medicare and Social Security. But for us budget watchers, is and I, I'm very fascinated to get your take on this. We um, sort of gasped when we when we saw that because the reality is staring us down in the face that within this budget ten year budget window. If we don't touch Medicare and Social Security, we're going to see some very significant benefit cuts to seniors who are dependent on those and also the disabled as well with Social Security. So I was wondering what you made of that moment. You were in the, you, you were in that chamber for a State of the Union addresses. Um, and where do we go from here? What are some ways that we might be able to get some movement on uh, you know, the necessity of touching these programs and shoring them up uh, for the years down the road. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I know I saw that. And, you know, both parties use it as a bludgeon against one another. And I know many of my colleagues who face down a lot of ads on both sides <laughs> about uh, you're going to, you know, destroy seniors. And um, it's interesting how much of our politics is really informed by the Reagan era <laughs> and some of the politics out of that, you know, the whole, you know, Reagan so skillfully bludgeoned Democrats over raising taxes that that has always been, I mean, every democratic politician I know, you know, is just absolutely many of them, you know, terrified about, uh, you know, being targeted as a tax tax and spend liberal. Well, actually, that's not true. There are a bunch of folks on the left who are in safe, gerrymandered safe seats who do not care and are perfectly happy to be there. But most of the people in swings districts, right, are very worried about that moniker. Um, along the same, it, it very similarly, and I was it Dan Rostenkowski, the seniors followed him out to the car and beat his car, you know. And, and, and uh, I think, you know, polit weirdly, that, that kind of... Um, that still exists very much in politics today that you, those are sort of the third rail of politics, social security, Medicare, don't touch them. Um, but, you know, the Democrats and others have started to have a conversation about, you know, people paying their fair share in taxes and that, you know, we do have very large corporations that pay zero. Uh, and, and so I think people are starting to find a way to have a dialogue around that. 
And I think similarly, we, we have to find a way to start having a dialogue around social security and Medicare. And an obvious one, again, is to go back to the challenge, an idea, we, you know, we have very wealthy people who are getting social security and Medicare and, um, you know, having them chip in a bit more, we might be able to be okay with that. And so, so starting to reframe the debate is going to be very important going forward. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith of Harris and I are talking with former U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux about the third rail of American politics and other challenges facing the federal budget process. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith, Av Harris, and I are talking with former U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, now a member of the Concord Coalition Board of Directors, we're happy to say, and we're discussing the challenges of the federal budget process. You know, one of the things that has been pointed out in the 30-plus years that the Concord Coalition has been operating is that the um, federal budget doesn't do a very good job of distinguishing between things that are investment expenses and that are immediate uh, wants versus needs, you might say. And, you know, you might have a little bit more of a tendency to deficit finance things that are truly investments because you think they're going to pay off in a larger economy over the long term or a more educated workforce or a more skilled workforce or, or whatever. And um, I think there are a lot of issues percolating around that. Uh, that are important to uh, to talk about. And uh, so I w- wanted to get your perspective from a, a public sector budgeting expert point of view on, you know, how do we distinguish between spending money on things that are long-term investments and things that could just turn out to be short-term pork barrel? There are several different dimensions to this. The federal government doesn't have a capital budget um, states tend to have have that. Um, one of the challenges you have with public sector budgeting is that you know human beings tend to make certain cognitive errors, which is to say that they they value much more highly a gain that they'll get right now, and they tend to heavily discount the cost that they may have to pay in the future. So they're not really so, and, and this is a real challenge with debt, uh, and it's what you know what we see uh, in the federal budget. At one time, if you're familiar with budget theory, fiscal illusion was often referred to, where you take the benefits now and you push it off to future generations, the cost off to future generations. Um, but I think behavioral economists have started to point out that there's some very human aspects. We all do this uh, in in ways that are somewhat sometimes subtle and sometimes not, whether you're taking out a balloon mortgage or, you know, many, many, there are many, many different times when we as human beings make this error. And then the political process reinforces this because you are having a two-year, four-year, six-year window uh, where everything is on the line. And so you want people to get as much benefit within the election cycle as possible. And those costs uh, are pushed out into the out years. So this creates some real challenges. Um, at, it, it, at the state level, one of the problems with this, because they're having to balance on an annual basis, um, is that they actually tend to really underfund capital investment. They really underfund long-term investments. Um, and 
it's a it's a it's an odd distortion that happens when they face a fiscal challenge. The first thing that often will get cut are some of those, um, you know, uh, the the capital plan is often where you you go to balance. Um, and some states even do that explicitly, like uh, South Carolina uh, has its reserves, anything that's not spent or any surplus they have then go into the capital plan. And if they don't have enough money, well, they just pull it out of the capital plan. So kind of explicit. The federal level, it's a little bit different um, where, you know, because we don't have this annual hard line that we have to hit, you know, the, the expenses, the it's just constantly being pushed into the future. So finding a way to make long-term investments without kind of giving in to this human propensity to have the goodies now and pay later um, is really, really challenging. One of my colleagues early on came to me and was like, well, you know how CBO scores over a 10-year window often, you get that 10-year score, we should really extend it to 30 years. And I understand the logic, which is that, you know, a child who has early childhood education, you know, has pre-K, right, is likely to pay real dividends uh, in the long term beyond a 10-year window. But the problem with that is it really intersects with this behavioral challenge that we have, which is that who the hell knows what's going to happen in 30 years? Who knows what's even going to happen in 10 years? I am happy to pay whatever you want in 30 years. I'll be, you know, <laughs> flying with angels. My grandmother always used to say. Um, so uh, anyway, so, so I just I think we have to kind of balance these two things. Uh, you, you know, how is it we keep an, keep an eye on the long term costs and benefits, um, but also keep that culture of discipline in the near term? Yeah, I'm always worried a little bit about what's referred to as dynamic scoring, which is basically exactly. you know, something something is going to pay off. So it's usually referred to uh, in terms of tax cuts, where Republicans have argued that, well, if we cut taxes, we're really not going to lose revenue because over the long term, we're going to bring in more revenue. So they pay for themselves. And I can remember uh, Tom DeLay uh, saying during the Bush uh, years that the way we could pay for the war in Iraq was to cut taxes. And that would uh, that, that would have been uh, well, well, anyway, uh, nobody ever thought about that as a way to pay for a war. But uh, except and, and now you, you but you are hearing the, the uh, uh, argument being made on the spending side as well. When you talk about the care economy and the ways to invest in childhood education, child care, elder care, uh, paid family leave, universal pre-care, a lot of those things that have very a lot to say for themselves in terms of improving the workforce, uh, improving education and, um, you know, contributing to a, a greater workforce. Uh, but the numbers are really like in, in uh, President Biden's Build Back Better bill, we're getting into the four trillion or six trillion dollar range. And you really have to think about, you know, how you're going to come up with the money to pay for that. So it's, I, I think it's uh, something that we're going to continually have to be uh, looking at in the, in the future. You know, when I was budget director at, at the Senate Budget Office, I would often have the legislators come up to me and say, hey, you have to build dynamic scoring into your models and things like that. And I actually did a, a pretty significant report looking at all sorts of different dynamic scoring models that the state different states had tried. And um you know, generally found that the dynamic effects were so small 
if even if they did happen, that they would be lost in the the, the revenue estimate. You know, they, they were within the margin of error of a revenue estimate. So you really couldn't tell. Um, so I'd always tell them, I'm like, look, it is fine for you to go make that intellectual argument. I am not going to build it into my budgeting models. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and the things that pay dividend over dividends over the long term, you know, to my mind are things we should be doing anyway, which is, you know, what does a society do? It invests in its young people. It takes care of people so that they can have, you know, good productive lives where they are able to, to find opportunity. And that's what, that's what we do. And, um, you know, to my mind, it's, it's fine to justify it as having these long-term benefits, but it doesn't require that. We should be doing a lot of that stuff anyway. Yeah, that's the argument. The argument should be the policy is right because the policy is right. <laughs> and, <laughs> my, yes. it, it, you know, and if it has a, you know, if it has a good beneficial effect, that's great. Uh, and I, uh, you know, but I, I, the people that I've talked to are on the CBO and, and others that have looked at dynamic scoring have generally found the same thing that, that you just articulated, which is it, it would have a positive effect, but, but not to such a dramatic effect uh, yeah. that it would, you know, end up paying for itself. Um, jump ball, Av and Phil, um, we've got a few minutes left here. Av, you want to get in? I, I have a quick question um, about revenue. Um, because th that's the other piece of what you're talking about, Bob, is that we are we are going to need to generate more revenue at the at the federal level. And I'm wondering, um, now that you're out of Congress and not facing any re-election battles, um, if you can um, talk to you know some of your you know fellow uh, Democrats, even some Republicans, um, and about the idea that you know Democrats have this idea where you can't tax anybody who's earning less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. But in order to right the ship, we may have to. What's your perspective on that? And if and do you share that view? And, and, and if so, what would be the best way of, of, uh, of getting there, of raising the revenue that, that we need? And if I could remind everyone, the, the Trump tax cuts are scheduled to expire in 2025, which is yeah. right after an election year, right? So we're up here in New Hampshire, and all these presidential candidates, of course, are going to be promising you know, to extend the tax cuts. So our revenue problem is going to worsen. Uh, so, so your question, Ab, has you know is even more strength to it. Yeah, I will say, I you know I I thought a lot about those issues, and I have a very hard time telling people that they are going to face a tax increase given the current mess of our federal budget. And what I see throughout the federal budget is a number of corporations who are basically taking advantage of the American taxpayers. They're taking advantage of us through Medicare, um, through, through the reimbursement rates, through all sorts of things just riddled in that program. Um, they're taking advantage of us in the Department of Defense. And there was a huge expose about how our Navy built, you know, a number of, I think they're called littoral combat ships that had to be trashed because they were so poorly designed. Um, it was something, I think it started out $250 million to build them, ended up around $500 million for each one. And there was going to be $70 million annually in operating expenses. And they didn't even work. And I, I think <laughs> until I could make the case to people that our budget is tight, that we really have run through it and we have wrung it dry, 
then I think, you know, then we can go and have a conversation uh, uh, about taxes. And I mean, I think it's, it, this is also in the tax code as well, that we have a lot of, you know, individuals who are not paying their fair share. We have corporations that are not paying their fair share. And I would need to make the case that that has been addressed before I ever went to a middle class person and said, you know, I'm going to, you know, we're going to propose something to increase your taxes. So that those those issues, um, I, I really felt quite strongly about that. That, And I can talk some about when we did the state budget, we really wrung it dry. And then we went to people and said, look, you know, we have no other place to turn. And so I think you have to make that case first. You know, there's quite a uh, the, 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 the target of uh, target rich opportunity in the tax expenditures. Um, yes. You know, deductions, credits, uh, special rates. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. You're uh, listening to Facing the Future. I want to thank our guest, Carolyn Bordeaux, who is a former member of Congress and now a member of the Concord Coalition Board of Directors. And uh, thanks for uh, sharing your insights on public sector budgeting. Thanks also to Phil Smith, our national field director, and Av Harris, our communications director, for their inputs as well. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Thank you.